The Gospel reading tonight is from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you build, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the Lord. a lot of intriguing characters and fascinating stories in the Bible, and yet I don't exactly have precise documentation on this, but I'm guessing there's hardly another passage that has had more impact on the course of history than this one. I mean, actually, I'm hoping I'm wrong on this. I hope the passage where Jesus blesses the meek and the weak and the poor and the hungry has had more impact. Or why not the one where he tells the Canaanite woman, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Jesus has a lot of encounters over the course of the Gospels where he blesses people, heals people, loves people, marvels at their faith, but I'm pretty sure none of those have received as much intricate theological, doctrine-making, institutional, bending attention as Peter's confession here. Like, this is the one that matters most, more than the dog woman or Mary Magdalene or the blind men or the beggars or the lame. I mean, I guess Jesus does say he's giving Peter the keys to the kingdom, but Matthew's the only gospel writer that even tells it that way. And maybe it was meant to be more of a casual sort of thing, like, nice answer, babe, the keys are yours, take it for a spin. Not, here are the keys once and forever and always only yours, Pontificus Maximus, for all time. Jesus doesn't actually say the Roman pontiff, the successor of blessed Peter, the prince of the apostles, true vicar of Christ, shall have primacy in the entire world. That was Pope Benedict XIV. And he doesn't say, furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. That was Pope Boniface VIII. I probably said that wrong. And maybe there is a little self-interest involved. I am really not meaning to get all Protestant on you. I'm pretty sure every branch of Christianity ever 
has taken parts of the scripture and blown them up so they obscure the whole beautiful, complex tangle of narratives and counter-narratives and nailed them down to much ill effect. Like, you must be born again. Like, three little verses on homosexuality. But I'm just thinking that maybe the spotlight type of reading, maybe spotlights in general, aren't as fruitful and generative as a broad, attentive to the many moments, attentive to the elusive, ambiguous, diversity sort of approach. Jesus says, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom more times than he gives Peter the keys. But I don't think that's had as much impact on history. The successor of the blessed Peter, Pope Urban II, launches the Crusades, the bloody holy wars against the Muslims. Pope Innocent IV put in motion the Inquisition, burned the Talmud, tortured Jews. I mean, if you take the keys and you get drunk on power, maybe you shouldn't be driving the car. Pope Urban VIII imprisoned Galileo for claiming the earth orbited around the sun. When Pope Leo X started selling indulgences to make money for the church, Martin Luther was like, no way, and thus began the Protestant Revolution, or Reformation. But this resulting division and rivalry between Protestants and Catholics, in which the interpretation of our seven verses played a major role, led to the German Peasants' War, the Eighty Years' War, the French Wars of Religion, the Thirty Years' War, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, Irish Wars up to this century, and much, much more. But I had to stop listing them because I needed to cut words for my sermon. The Jesuit missionaries under the order of the Pope forcibly converted Native Americans, nearly wiping out Native culture, language, religion, all over the Americas. I mean, I don't know what the history of the world might have looked like if the religious institution hadn't given such enormous weight to these verses. But it, it might have been interesting to see. And I wonder if there's a possibility of handling the text a bit differently as we go forward. Jesus asked a question. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, correctly? So theologians rush in frenzied with the anticipation of clarity, with microscopes and spotlights and hammers and nails because they want the keys? But however intent people have been on narrowing, nailing down the one right answer, they have failed to succeed. The text gives birth to much more diversity than it eliminates. Ebionites, Arians, heretics, all manner of arguments and discussion and creeds. Whether or not you start out believing that there are a million possible answers to Jesus' question or one right answer hardly matters in the end. The question lives. And I'm thinking that from our vantage point, maybe one could look over the vast sea of diverse interpretation and instead of having a war about it, go, wow, meaning is elusive. 
And maybe instead of trying to tie it down in a fight to the death, a possible attitude might be cool. I mean, I could be out of line here. But one single timeless meaning that everyone's going to agree on, obviously not possible. Note the wars, blood, torture, oppression, suppression, destruction, etc. Maybe one single timeless meaning isn't even desirable because the whole thing is just much more alive than that. Maybe the most important thing Peter says here isn't Jesus, you are the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being one substance with the Father. I mean, he didn't actually say that. But rather, you are the Son of the living God. Emphasis on the living. I mean, creeds are great. They're the result of people discussing things, they are decisions made after long, long conversations. I like that. But there are a lot of Christian creeds. The Messiah Creed composed by a tribe in East Africa. We believe in the one God who out of love created the beautiful world and everything good in it and wanted humans to be happy in the world. We are waiting for him. He is alive. He lives. This we believe. Amen. The United Church of Canada has a new creed called a new creed. God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. Maybe the beauty of these verses don't lie in the answer Peter gave, but in the question. And it's very important that we keep asking it. Faith isn't clinging to a particular set of answers as much as struggling with relating to a living, moving God or whatever you'd like to call him, her, it, truth, grace, divinity, the one true God, lover of all, beautiful, nonviolent, revolutionary. Honestly, the whole passage seems, passage seems much more interesting if we hear the question and venture a thought on our own, as if the question is addressed to us. Who do we say that Jesus is? I find it a hard question to answer. In part because I'm enamored of the mystery. In part because I don't know. In part because I believe I can't believe. And in part because I learned from a very early age through fundamentalism and then evangelicalism and eventually a great seminary education but it's not really quite legitimate to be exploratory around this question, to have one's own thoughts about it. I mean, it's okay to have interesting answers to the questions about who God is, but there are such strict guidelines for answers about Jesus. And there are very specific slots in which to file anything you might say, labels, heresies, categories. And so there isn't a lot of room for, I don't know, liveliness or play or exploration or really true curiosity around this question. And I think this maybe goes hand in hand with the fact that Christianity became the religion of the empire 
so early on in its life. It's always a shocking thing to me how quickly the Judeo-Christian lost the counter-empire thing. Empire needs an overarching system to govern thought and belief. That's how it works, a coherent system. The sort of local, small-batch nature of Christian practice and belief and worship in the early days really wouldn't do. It needed to be more organized. It needed a sort of standardized citizenry to discourage dissent and originality in order to render the populace manageable, in order to create a harmless electorate, a servile labor force, a virtual herd of mindless consumers. And you know, the empire actually hovers over this scene in Matthew, the name of Caesar literally. They are in Caesarea Philippi. So maybe the most important thing in Peter's answer is that he would dare say, with the empire hovering, bearing down, swirling around, you are the son of the living God. That's sort of like dynamite descent. In the empire where Caesar is the son of God, in a world where everyone must agree that Caesar is king in order for things to run properly, Jesus' question is a way of asking the disciples, why are you following me? Why are you here? I don't think it's so much a test where there's one right answer and Peter is like, why? Because Caesar isn't my Messiah. Caesar isn't the salvation. You are. I like that. Lately, I've been going with that. I'm not as sure about my Christology as I was in seminary, but this I know for sure, Caesar is not saving anybody. I believe in a Messiah who calls people out of empire, calls people to refuse to cooperate with the forces of destruction and domination, frees people from slavery to the empire of Egypt, Rome, capitalism, the USA. The empire is so hopeless and oppressive and destructive, and it depresses me. I love the wild. I hate the gift shops. Shot glasses with the National Park logo. Stuffed grizzly bear toys. Huckleberry chocolates plunge me into despair. The machine seems hopeless to me. Racist, sexist, greedy, and mean, destroying the environment, bombing and shooting, always bombing and shooting. I think the liberation from empire is going to look different in different times and places. But I love a God who unlocks the chains. I mean, who do you say that he is? What do you love? Why are you here? I don't think it's that you have to have an answer to that, but I think it would be good to be able to formulate a thought, to feel free to formulate an idea. I think it matters what you think, because it affects how you live. I mean, who do you think he is? 
Maybe a complete stranger, maybe an alien, somebody you don't feel like you know or particularly like, a con man, a fake, a mystical genius, a good lover, a bad lover, a Gandhi, a Buddha, of one essence with the Father, true light of light, begotten, not made. I mean, it's okay to think an unorthodox thought. It's okay to have more than one feeling on the subject. Maybe it's even better to think something unusual, scandalous, weird, not traditionally faithful. I kind of think the church might need a little of that. I don't mean to get all evangelical on you, but I think God wants to have a relationship with us, to be intimate with us somehow, and might actually rather hear, well, I think you're kind of irrelevant or frustrating I really don't know what to think about you right now than some sort of robotic, begotten, not made. I could be wrong. What it means to follow Jesus depends on who you think he is. And there are going to be a lot of different answers, and it's important to debate. But maybe not so much start, wo- start wars and burn people at the stake. There's a lot of people that aren't interested in the question at all. A lot of my closest friends aren't interested in the question at all, and I wouldn't ask them because it would be so irritating to them. And honestly, if someone came up to me on the street and asked me this question, I would be quite irritated myself. But I think one of the reasons that we have church is so that we can actually have this crazy conversation. I mean, it's hard to answer the question in a way that doesn't seem boring or dumb or like oppressed or robotic or completely lacking in passion and imagination or creativity. But maybe it's worth a try. Maybe what we think and do in this regard is important. Meister Eckhart, who was a great mystic and tried as a heretic in the Inquisition, said... We're all mothers of God. Nice because of the non-patriarchal feel. And he said, God is always waiting to be born. We're all mothers of God, and God is always waiting to be born. Maybe heretical, but cool. Because of course we're not really giving birth to God. But God's love is birthed through us. Through our lives, and our thoughts, and our beliefs, and our deeds. And that is beautiful, and that is unsettling. God doesn't want a manageable populace, a harmless electorate, a herd of mindless consumers. That's the empire. We are asked to think, to respond, to dissent, to liberate to bind the forces of death and loose the love, may we proceed with an appropriate sense of awe and humility.